Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. Welcome back, everyone, to another outstanding episode of Dead Rock Stars, the podcast in which me, Joel McIver, and my beloved friend and journalist, uh, hero of mine, actually, Mick Wall, yes. uh, discuss our lives, times and careers, ups, downs, the things we've done, and two people backstage, on stage, near the stage, famous people, no longer with us, and it's Dead Rock Stars. Are you suggesting we've actually killed them? That is not my suggestion. Uh- well, I've killed a few, but only in print. Any famous ones? Ah. All famous ones, Joel. As you'll remember from the very first uh, episode of Dead Rock Stars, Mick once irritated the late great Lemmy Kilmister with a review of a live album that they'd done, and that is what he's referring to when he means killing people in print, I believe. Well, that's only one of them, Joel. That's one of many. There are, there are bloody loads. Now, yeah. we've talked about uh, musicians of uh, really all, all stripes so far in this series. Largely to do with sort of, you know, unsociably loud music played by hairy men with large guitars. Our subject today is a little bit different because he did enter that territory, but he covered all territories really when it comes to style, genre, music. He stole from everybody. Now, uh, would you like to introduce this, uh, our subject? Today we are going to be talking about the one and only David Bowie. I thought his name was David Jones. His real name was David Jones. But I think our listeners might remember him somewhat might better, know him better as David <clears throat> Bowie. And is it Bowie or Bowie? Bowie. It is Bowie. And the reason I know that, I'm just going to plug a book I wrote, was, as I tend to do. Yeah. What was that, 30 seconds in and we're already <laughs> plugging a book? That's, look at our producer laughing. Now look, in his early days, David Bowie had a band called The Spiders from Mars. They're all dead, apart they, from the drummer. They weren't really his early days. That was when he became famous. Yeah. His right. early days were 10 years before. All right. In that. my early days, he had a band called The Spiders from Mars. Yeah. They're all dead apart from the drummer, Woody Woodmansey, great man, friend of mine. And I worked with Woody on his autobiography. It makes laughing because uh, I say this a lot. A couple of years ago, turned out very, very well, available in all good bookshops near you. Now, uh, Woody always referred to him as Bowie because that was how he pronounced his name himself. So anybody who says Bowie's name was Bowie is wrong. There's a really simpler way of putting this. Yeah, I've had a little coffee there. You can he he, he the named himself after the Bowie knife. That's all you need to say. The Bowie right? knife? The Bowie knife. Okay, all right, yeah. good. Now, am I right in saying you met the man? I did, on more than one occasion. Do yeah. tell. Well, before I get into that, I think it's really important to establish why Bowie's important. And you just mentioned the spiders from Mars. That was his backing band, you know. 
That yeah. was a band that David invented. In fact, it was a fictional band. He, it comes from his album, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. In fact, the band you referred to with Woody Woodmansey, Mick Ronson, Trevor Boulder existed before that. That band actually played on his second album, The Man Who Sold the World. It appeared again on Hunky Dory and then Ziggy and then Aladdin Sane and then that was the end of that. Mm. The band did one more album, Pin Ups, but by then Ainsley Dunbar had taken over from Woody. And Bowie had more lives than a cat in terms of his musical career. His real early days in the 60s, there were various configurations. The Laughing Gnome. Well, The Laughing Gnome again came a few years into it. Before that, he was Davy Jones, The King Bees. Um, the Conrads. The Conrads, yes, indeed. He played sax. He always played sax. I mean, he plays sax on a lot of his solo albums as well. David plays the sax. Yeah, thanks. Trent. First of many Bowie impressions I hope we're going to do. No, I hope you're not going to do. But um, So by the time he gets to Ziggy Stardust, he's gone through his folk minstrel stage mm. with uh, Space Oddity. He'd gone through his Anthony Newley, I will be a theatre performer and kind of stage musical actor. Who was the mime Mark, artist who inspired him? Can't Lindsay Kemp. Lindsay, Lindsay Kemp. Kemp. He'd done classes with Lindsay Kemp. And uh, he'd also experimented with heavy metal on The Man Who Sold the World. He had a painting and decorating business with uh, Mark Boland. Well, they painted their manager's wall on one occasion. Well, Did they never very... established a limited company via a lawyer. No, oh, I think they were merely sole traders. But And that's a facet of Bowie's <laughs> career we, that very few people know, and I'm sure we're not going to waste <laughs> any more time on. The point being is, is people talked about him as a chameleon. Yeah. That's too easy a way of putting it. The man was desperate for success. You know, he entered the Maltese Song Contest for Europe, you know, in the late 60s. An early manager was grooming him to be the new Tommy Steele, which you can see, half for sixpence <laughs> is better than half a star man. Ken, Ken something was the manager? Ken Pittman? Pitt, something like Pitt, that. Yeah. Ken Pitt. Was it, Ken it. Pitt? Yeah, it was Ken Pitt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They parted ways. It was when, Would the they have when the painting business didn't take off. No, that was an even Ooh. earlier manager. Sorry, listeners, I'm being Can flippant. you shut up about the painting business? <laughs> uh, no, stop. The fact that he finally became famous in 1972, at that point he was almost old hat, particularly with the music press, who were yeah. used to seeing him around, having him continually present new guises, new ways of being who he hoped to be. The whole Ziggy Stardust thing was a new haircut, new mm, clothes. Mm. The proto-mullet. Yeah, and very much because he couldn't get gigs. You know, and his agent had said to him, look, I can book you into colleges, I can book you into clubs and, yeah. and small halls. Get a rock and roll band together. Forget trying to be Bob Dylan. Get a band together. So, again, he contrived the whole thing, but this time with enormous poise and enormous success. And in fact, you know, you mentioned Bolan. <clears throat> Bolan was a major star and Bowie was still in the shallows. Yeah. Bowie really did look like yesterday's man until suddenly he was the main man. Yeah. At which point his career eclipsed Bolan's. And most gallingly for Bolan, you know, Bowie then went on to become a success in America. Yeah. All right. So what I uh, suspect we're leading towards is a huge picture of a sort of a man who went through so many facets and so many appearances right up to his last work, really, and through the 90s and in the 80s. He had a different face, did he not, for every decade or several different faces for every decade? Several different. I mean, in the 70s was the decade of the endless reinvention, you know, uh, from folk singer with curly hair on Space Oddity in 69 to weird Warholian Dylan-esque 
singer-songwriter with very long blonde hair in 1971, then into Ziggy, then into Diamond Dogs, yeah. where, where, again, he changed his haircut and all the glitter clothes went and he had this bizarre hybrid of braces and tie and side parting and then into young americans probably the most radical move of of all because you know disco and soul music you know apart from marvin Gaye and stevie wonder that made very much kind of white rock audiences sit up and listen with their albums the rest of it was considered rubbish was considered you know second rate compared to the neil young album or whatever it might be bowie took the form and injected it with this incredible credibility. It was previously thought impossible. Mm. How can you do disco and soul and funk and make it as good as something the Rolling Stones might do? Well, here's Bowie to show you how. Then after that, past station to station, you get low... And heroes, the, side. the Berlin trilogy, as I believe it's referred well, it's to. referred to as the Berlin trilogy. Although most of Low was done in France, and most of Lodger, the third one, was done in Switzerland. Heroes was done almost entirely in Berlin, but he was living in Berlin. That was the point. And side two of Low and side two of Heroes, it's instrumental sides of yeah. music, yeah. which really was incredibly radical. Yeah. You know, you thought he'd gone out on a limb with disco and soul. Now listen to this stuff. He'd been listening to Philip Glass, Steve Reich. He'd been listening to Kraftwerk. Yeah. And to kind of shoehorn that in, in 1976, was incredible. I mean, it was Mm. such Mm. a bold move. It's Mm. hard to imagine. Well, I don't think anybody has done anything comparable since. Yeah. They've chosen one or the other. Yeah. And to continue to do that over so many years, I think, has not been equaled. No, absolutely. no one else is doing that. I mean, I think he, at a certain point, like all artists, I think he fell off his pedestal, fell off his perch a little bit, because once you get to Let's Dance in 1983, which is another reinvention, yeah. he's almost come full circle back to Tommy Steele. You know, he's not the far-out guy living on the edge no. that he was of ashes to ashes. He's Mr. Mainstream. Right. Yeah. He's like the ringmaster. He's and you had blonde bob, white suit. Dancing in the streets a bit later on. With Jagger. Embedded in the eight. mainstream there, yeah. Yeah, okay. And and a whole new generation that only knows him for that. Uh, Did you keep listening after that, into the 90s and beyond? No, I really didn't. Like I mean, so I, many people, right? Well, I mean, I, I you know, I, I was a major Bowie fan. I mean, yeah. he, he Ziggy came out when I was 14. Yeah. That was the second album I ever bought. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was right there as he was becoming very, very famous and renowned. Did you have a red mullet? I had a hennaed hair. Did you? I did. Are there photos? Uh, no, I don't think they'd invented There will be. We're going to find one. In those days. Okay, cool. But the reason I ask about perhaps a certain segment of his audience dropping off in the 90s, which is also true for me, it seemed that the, his endless reinvention had been amazing up to a point, and then perhaps when he started doing drum and bass... I got it. You know, he was doing what he always did, collaborating with the great talent of the day. But do you know what I think happened? And I, and you see this, I think, pretty much with all the major stars. You know, yeah. on a previous podcast, we were saying if if John Bonham hadn't died, yeah. would Zeppelin's comeback tour of America in 1981, would it have been a success? Would they have gone on and made more great albums? Yeah. And my feeling was definitely not. Bowie, by the time you get to Let's Dance, for me, that's still a meh kind of album. Mm. You know, I still don't even like the song Let's Dance. I find it an enormous contrivance. The fact that he also included two songs from Iggy Pop's earlier albums, <laughs> which he'd 
co-written. Ago and some other one. Yeah. Did um, you like tonight. Ashes to Ashes, which had come out yes. a years before? See, that's, that's a me- great song, right? Well, that album is an amazing album. That was his last masterpiece yeah. for me. I mean, the album he brought out after Let's Dance Tonight was just dreadful. I mean, mm. he's doing versions of God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Mm. You know, it's all about the bank manager at this point. You oh, know. Bowie Bonds and all that kind of business well, stuff. Well, no, Bowie Bonds was the 90s. Yeah. But Tin Machine, which was 89, yeah. what he characterised as pinstripes and purple haze, was just shite, David. <laughs> <laughs> it's just bollocks. And I remember having friends over who do not, they were not rock fans. These are people involved in television and things. They're going, oh, it's so marvellous. David's, David's mm. kind of reinvented mm. hard rock. I'm going... No, no, no. Mm. This is 1989. I'm going to play you Faith No More. Mm. Then I'm going to play you King's X. Mm. Then I'm going to play you some Metallica. Mm. Then I'm going to play you something from the GNR Lies album. And then I'm going to play you some of that fucking awful Tin Machine stuff. (laughs) Tin Machine, Tin Machine. (laughs) (laughs) Was that the first time he put a major foot wrong in your view? Uh, no, he was on a downward trajectory. I mean, that was a complete misstep. I th- to me, that was patronising and rubbish. It? Yeah. it was patronising. Strange move. It wasn't. It was contrived. It was. Won't this be gorgeous? You know, and I hate that in any artist. But the Glass Spider album wasn't very good. Mm. The one before that, the follow-up, the very self-conscious follow-up to Let's Dance, was rubbish. Mm. Mm. By this time, listen. In fairness to the guy, he's now in his forties. Yeah. You know, when I was in my 40s, I no longer cared whether I spilled blood on the page for Kerrang! magazine. I mean, I wasn't <laughs> with Kerrang! magazine anymore. But right, yeah. Bowie was in his 20s when he did Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Alain Sane, Diamond Dogs. Yeah. You know, of course he went out on a limb. Mm-hmm. But by the time he's living in Switzerland with his son, Joey, as he was known at that point. Yeah. He's a guy who just wants to make a record and sell it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It just is felt wrong because it was David Bowie. Elton John, Rod Stewart, of course, by all means, go and do another yeah. fits the mould kind of a record and flog it. Yeah. But Bowie, it was very disappointing. So by the time you get to drum and bass... <laughs> Not just drum, but bass as Drum well. and bass. Well, I used to love it when, you know, middle-class Bowie fans used to go, oh, and on the new album, he's doing drum and bass. Oh, yeah, I thought, he's had drum and bass for a long time, but I hear what you're saying. Now, by then, I, was, I didn't care anymore. Hello, Space Boy. Oh, fuck off. Yeah. What about the 2000s then, his latter stuff? So the last few records. Um, Some the, high the la- points? The last two records were, were good. Oh, yeah. The masterpiece was Black Star. Right. You know, a true masterpiece. Mm. And I think that forgives everything. Because, yeah, he coasted in his 40s and 50s. Of course he did. Mm. You know, name an artist that made one album as good as Ziggy yeah, or Diamond Dogs or Station to Station. You know, one is enough to give you a career that, yeah. in my view, validates you for the rest of your yes. life. No, that makes sense. Bowie made several. So the fact that he finished his final days making one of the greatest records he ever made to me, wasn't necessary to validate the peaks of his career, but so, so served the legend that um, it was heartbreaking. I mean, it broke my heart when he died. I think Mm. if he'd died five years earlier, I might have taken it more in stride. But he hadn't lost it. Yeah, he had been coasting for a while. And the key, I think, to the 80s and the 90s is he wasn't innovating. He was looking at what was out there. So what should I make that is marketable at this point? And I think by the final album, he'd gone back to what can I make that really actually says something real about yeah. where I am, who I am, yeah. 
who we are. I have to give Tony Visconti some credit for that as well, I think. Uh, why? Because he produced that last album. He produced a couple of the shit you. ones as well, you know. Yeah, but the broader point is that Bowie tended to ally himself to clever, creative people. All right, people. fair enough, fair enough, fair um, enough. I, you see, I, I give Visconti credit, but... Don't forget, he played Bowie bass on the Man Who Sold the, um, Yeah, Man Who Sold the World as well. Yeah, I know. And it's all over the record. The only albums I've ever heard that have more bass up front are Iron Maiden it's records. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, it's I, mean, I mean, I like the bass on it, but people didn't it's, get into Bowie because of the no. bass on Man Who Sold the well, World. Well, I know you are. Uh, yeah. You know something about bass, I think, don't you? Well, uh, I should plug the magazine I edit, which is called no. Bass Guitar. But that no, you really <laughs> shouldn't. No. <laughs> but that doesn't mean no. I, I automatically defer uh, to people who are bass players. Of course not, John. The bass playing is great on that record, but as you say, it's uh, it's unusually prevalent. The record was a gigantic flop. The worst selling of his career still remains that way. Yeah. Okay. Dead rock stars. So much love. So much love. Let me tell you about meeting him. The first time I met David Bowie, I was hanging out with a friend of mine, a drummer Hmm. called Danny Heatley. This is 1982. Yeah. And Danny was the drummer at the time in a group called The Exploited. Oh, yeah. And The Exploited were kind of uber post-punk. They had the Mohicans. They played very extreme kind of punk metal. Yeah. And they were doing a gig... In, of all places, Montreux. <laughs> and I was there. The Jazz Fest or just a... No, no, gig? just yeah, yeah. a shitty club down the road, you know. <laughs> yeah. Le punk extraordinaire. <laughs> Ce soir, Ce Montreux. Soir, mesdames et messieurs. Les punks sont ici. Yeah. Sur le stage. <laughs> Les exploited. <laughs> and they come on. Factory, factory, factory. Like that. Yeah. So um, anyway, afterwards, sitting around in the bar, round a table... And it's a horrible, you know, post-punk club after the show. And there's all cigarette butts and beer spilled everywhere. Sounds like a Tom Waits lyric. Yeah, except nowhere near as glamorous. <laughs> like a Tom Waits thing without there's Tom cigarette Waits. cigarette butts everywhere. And suddenly this bloke comes over and just literally plonks himself on the chair with a big tray of lagers, puts it in the middle of the table, goes, Hello, lads. He goes, Have a drink on me. And we all looked. And we'd like a double take. It was like... That's David Bowie. No, that's the maddest story I've ever heard. That's David Bowie. And we're kind of... It's like if he sat here now, I'd look at you and go... Are you... That is... That, is that David I told Bowie? you? You look a bit like David Bowie. Well, no, no, he... I mean, he was very Bowie. He wasn't like he was sort of, you know, in, in street clothes. No, I'm with you. This is 82. Yeah. So, so he's like super Bowie, know. you know. And uh, I remember being really struck because he was... He didn't stop swearing. Yeah. He goes, you know, why I love your music. Now, he was, he, he, uh, in his voice, he was like, you know, why I love your music. He goes, because it's fucking mad. He goes, and in my head, it's like, I feel, you know, fucking mad. Like one side of my brain is completely fucking mad mm. and the other side of my brain battles it. And Something I'll, tells me cocaine was involved. Well, possibly. <laughs> We're squaffing beers sort of going, yeah, no... Know what you mean, Dave? Yes, David. I mean, they were Scottish, so they were like, "Oh, I fucking hey, you, David, you David, boy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to Can you do the laughing gnome for us? Yeah, do the laughing gnome go in there, Sorrow, talk about sorrow. I had sorrow when he, I heard your last one. So let get straight. Bowie sat down in some shitey club with you, drinking beers and talking, buying beers. Talking, that is amazing. and we were just laughing our ass. He was a good off. bloke, right? He was a good guy. He was a great bloke. Cut That's to, amazing. Cut to four years later. I now meet him on the Glass Spider tour to interview him for um, a show I was doing on Sky. Not the Monsters of Rock yeah. show. I used to also do a pop show. Yeah. Uh, How was the mullet at this point? 
both of us were fully mulleted. In full fledged. This was 1987. <sighs> this is mega mullet time. Mm. You know, Don't... it was in Amsterdam. On the flight over, my mullet was actually in the <laughs> seat next to Had its to own me. seat. Had its, own, had its <laughs> own seat in first class. If they touched, they would have been in some sort of black hole. Like well, I mean, you... he was on champagne and caviar. I'm in the back <laughs> drinking, you know, <laughs> miniatures. <laughs> <laughs> Miniatures of Tizer and vodka, you know. And feeding the mullet every now and then to keep it quiet. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> it was very demanding. Yeah. So, um, so Bowie rocks up and you're interviewing him for TV now. No, I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you. Oh, he's no, in Nick. a hotel room. He's in a hotel room with the cameras and everything set up. But he's, it's like the, it is the conveyor belt. There's maybe six uh, people going before me. He's running late, blah, blah, blah. I went to the toilet. In the hour and 45 yeah. minutes I had to wait. I went to the toilet about 15 times. Yes. Yeah. No, no. Uh, you, with fear. Not, yeah. Not because you were... No, nerves, uh, nerves. Not because not you were um, cleaning out your nose with powder. No, but I, I kept thinking, everybody must think this, because I'd go in, piss, full piss, no drips. Like, no drips. Come like, out, thanks for that detail. Come yeah. out, sit down and go, <laughs> fuck, go back in. And I'm thinking, everybody must think, right? No, full piss. No drips. I had... I must have had no liquid left <laughs> in my body by the time I walked in. You were in. like a bit of leather. Brilliant. So, so I, No, hang on. So right, I walk right. in... And typical theatrical Bowie, he's standing... Hello, Michael. No, no, he's standing with his back to me. He's looking out the window. We're on, like, the 30th floor or something. He's looking out the window. He's got his hands behind yeah, his back. Yeah, yeah. Legs astride. Mm. You know, like out of the man who fell to earth or something. He's looking out the window. And I walk in and the woman goes, David, this is Mick Wall. And he wheels round with his hand out and he goes, Mick Wall, I've always wanted to meet you. Fuck. And I went, oh, fuck off. And he said, no, no, my son Joey is a huge heavy metal fan because we sit and watch the Monsters of Rock show together. I went, no way. <sighs> he said, you couldn't get me a Monsters of Rock T-shirt for my son, could you? Because <sighs> we used to have a T-shirt for the show. I said, yeah, of course. So I ended up sending him one and he sent me a beautiful, expensive. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Glass spider tour jacket. 
which about three years later I was wearing going through New York. And this guy comes up to me, very agitated. Where would you get that jacket? Yeah. I said, oh, a friend gave it to me. He went, bullshit. I worked on that tour. There were only six of those jackets made. Where did you get it? I said, well, David gave it to me. He went, oh, okay. <laughs> Bloody hell. But here is a great Bowie story that Bowie told me that day after we'd finished filming. By He's, the way, did he remember that you had met four years before? No, bless his okay, yeah, yeah. Right. No, not a clue, you know. And I wasn't about to remind him. Mm. So we finished the filming and we're leaving the hotel. I didn't realise he was standing next to me. I thought it was Gail, the producer. And I literally <laughs> turned to him and I went, that, that was all right, wasn't it? And he went, yeah, I thought it went really well. <laughs> uh, Just I, as I, well you didn't say Bowie was yeah, a twat. thank God that... Fuck that guy, you know. So, <laughs> so we're walking and we're just chatting. And he says, um, I don't know how it began, but he, he tells me this story. He says, um, I wish I could remember what I said to prompt him to tell this story. But anyway, he said, you know, Joey and I were at home one night in Geneva or yeah. wherever they lived. Yeah. He said, and uh, the film of Ziggy Stardust. Yes. Kenny Baker made a famous film yeah, from the, the 73 Farewell Show, yeah. but it didn't go on general release for over 10 years. And uh, he said, we were at home one night, obviously pre-Google, they're looking at the local paper. Yeah. He said, we noticed it was on in town <laughs> and we had nothing to do. It was like a boring Wednesday night. And he said, we both said, shall we go? <sighs> he said, Joey was like 16 at the time or yeah. something like that. And... Um, so David said, yeah, let's go, let's go. So Joey goes, I've got to go and get ready first. So Bowie's like, well, hurry up because, you know, it starts at eight or whatever it is. So Joey runs up the stairs. He's gone for ages and half an hour, 45 minutes. And David's going, Joey, come on, we've got to go. Finally, Joey comes down the stairs. He's been in his dad's old wardrobe. He's dug out all the Ziggy clothes. Yeah. He's put on makeup and styled his hair. And he's coming down the stairs in the full Ziggy outfit. <laughs> Regalia. Regalia. Bloody hell. And David goes, the first words out of my mouth were, you're not going out looking like that. <laughs> ah, brilliant. That's amazing. He goes... This reminded me of the exploited meeting. He goes, and at that point, my head went, oh, no, how can you? Oh, yes, oh, no, oh, God. It was like one side of my brain. I thought, oh, fuck, here we go again. Yeah. And But the other side of my brain, you know. This so- is why we do this podcast, Mick. <laughs> Stories like that you are just gold. You cannot get them anywhere. Maximum round of applause for you for that. Mick Wall and Joel McIver present Dead Rock Stars. As I recall, there was a cabal of rock stars who kind of revolved around Bowie taking a lesser or a greater influence from them and just being this sort of cool, superhuman, sort of largely New York-based bunch of legends. Is that how you perceive it? Well, there was definitely a period where everything he touched turned to gold. Mm. It wasn't just the New York artists. Obviously, you're thinking of Lou Reed here. You know, Bowie was a huge Velvet Underground fan at mm. a time when mm. almost no one in the world had ever heard of the Velvet Underground. Yeah, He famously dedicated Queen Bitch on Hunky Dory mm to the VU with some white light from VU or something, yeah. re- referencing white light, white heat by yeah. Velvet Underground, which essentially he was saying he kind of borrowed from mm. to, to write Queen Bitch. That was the first time I'd ever heard of them. So he was already spreading the word. But by the time you get to Ziggy, Lou Reed is a solo artist. He's made one album, which was so-so yeah. and hadn't done anything. I mean, Lou's got a day job at this point as a typist. <laughs> and Bowie takes it upon himself to bring Lou Reed into the main man management fold and produce his next record, 
which is called Transformer. Yeah. <laughs> Mick Ronson comes in and plays guitar on it, plays piano on it. Bowie does backing vocals. You can hear his vocals so clearly on tracks like Satellite of Love. Yeah. But, of course, the big hit was Walk on the Wild Side. Mm. And I remember when that was a hit, there was a great deal of talk at the time of, you know, the do, 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 do the coloured girls. Yeah. Everybody said, the coloured girls are David and Mick Ronson. Those are the coloured girls. And you'd listen and you'd know it wasn't them, yeah. but it was just such a great story. Uh, nice little story. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was a fabulous hit, one yeah. of Lou's biggest ever. At the same time, he also brought back from the dead Mott the Hoople. Right. A, oh, a, 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 a little-known uh, English group that had signed to Ireland Records, few albums, nothing gained any traction. They broke up. Bowie found out. was like, oh, no, I really like them. Mm, mm, Got mm. in touch. I mean, this is the work of a 24 or 25-year-old, isn't it? Oh, I'll ring them, yeah, you know. Yeah. And he said, uh, I've, I've written a song for you, which, you know, just a little ditty called All the Young Dudes, which is now easily up there with Walk on the Wild Side yeah. or any of those great classic songs. He sings backups on that, doesn't he? He does, yeah, mm. he does. Did he write Real Wild Child? Or, or, no, no, or that's somehow a, have something to do with it? Well, that was an Iggy Pop album. Yeah. Real Wild Child's actually a very old song. You can find versions in the early 60s and late Bowie 50s of that. Bowie's relationship with Iggy Pop yeah. is a long one. I mean, at the same time he was producing Transformer and producing the All the Young Dudes album for Mott the Hoople, he also produced the third Stooges album, Raw Power. <laughs> Again, he brought them in. Bowie's management took them over at a time when they were dead in the water. Iggy, in fact, was yeah. you know in a mental hospital got them signed to CBS, same label that they'd got Mott the Hoople signed to, and produced Raw Power. Now, Raw Power wasn't the hit that All the Young Dudes and Transformer was. There was no hit single from it. Yeah. But it's still a record we talk about today. You know, we talk about that when we can't remember the last five albums Iggy <clears throat> Pop has done. Yeah. We still talk about Raw Power. You know, there's a track on that, Gimme Danger. That's the track Axel plays every night before he goes on stage with yeah. Guns N' Roses. Yeah. It's one of those records. So his relationship with Iggy was very embedded already. But when you get to the late 70s, Iggy comes to Berlin to live with Bowie. Mm, mm, they're mm. flatmates, mm. albeit a very nice flat, but they're flatmates. And just as Bowie is doing the so-called Berlin trilogy, he also co-writes and produces two albums for Iggy, the first of which is The Idiot, yeah. from which came China Girl, which Bowie later does his own version yeah. of from which came Tonight, which Bowie later did his own version of, and several other great tracks. And then the next album, Lust for Life. <laughs> Again, neither of these records are significant hits. Mm. But then who doesn't know the track Lust for Life yeah. these days? Or The Passenger. Yeah. And these are all Bowie curated yeah. moments in Iggy's career. Yeah. There's a great uh, a story of when Bowie and Lou Reed, Lou Reed had done a show at the Hammersmith Odeon. This is in 1977. And Lou says to Bowie, look, we really should work together again because they didn't do anything after Transformer. Yeah. And Bowie says to Lou, oh, uh, listen, you get off drugs and I'll make your next record with you. <laughs> and Lou Reed literally punched him in the face. And Bowie went over at the chair. You know, we were talking in a previous podcast yeah. about Bonzo smashing people in the face. Yeah. Hang out with Lou Reed for a while in the 70s. See if he can come <laughs> out of that Someone's unscathed. Someone's going to get lamped. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It would be remiss of us not to discuss Bowie's role in the sexual revolution and his, and yeah. his sort of avatar of, of sexual politics. Yeah. I mean, when, as I mentioned earlier, I was working with Woody Woodmidgey on his book, we talked a lot about that pre-Ziggy time when Bowie crafted this image 
took all the band down to the King's Road and equipped them with all this stuff, which was essentially girls' clothes and theatrical material and stuff that Angie ran up on her sewing machine. Incredible stuff. They looked like, you know, a bunch of aliens, essentially, as did Bowie. Yeah. Now, you just mentioned Lou Reed. Uh, you mentioned Iggy. There was, was there not, a sort of amorphous sort of pansexual thing that surrounded all those guys, yeah. which made them exotic and exciting and interesting. Yeah. yeah. Not just because of the glitter and the glam and all that incredible stuff. That itself looks more and more relevant in today's day and age, I would say, doesn't it? The fact that there was this experimentation and this kind of, like, fucking with people's expectations. Well, it, it was, you know, we'd had the sexual revolution in the in the 60s, and this was Bowie just taking it the next logical yeah. step, which was, yeah, yeah. in those days, the word was bisexual. These days, you'd say pansexual. Yeah. But in the early 70s, it was it was still regarded as, I mean, only it'd be Dangerous, in, illegal just a couple yeah, of yeah, years yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the music business had always been rife with yeah. entrepreneur Larry Parnes yeah, and all sure. these people yeah. preying on young boys and turning them into pop stars. Yeah. Mark Bolan and Bowie had had many uh, homosexual experiences with previous managers and yeah. other people they slept with to try and further their careers. There are people I know from the music business that worked at Apple in those days that had to do various favours for people in order to get their jobs. It was just how it was, mm, you know. Mm. So Bowie opening the, the blinds on that and shining yeah. light on it, it yeah. was already there. Yeah. But Bowie turned it into a thing. And suddenly, uh, it's not just fashion. As you say, it's a conscious thing. So yeah. suddenly, it's not just um, David Bowie and Mark Boland. There's Roxy Music. Yeah. They're, uh, the Stones are suddenly wearing yeah, right. lame and yeah. crazy stuff. Elton John suddenly discovers glasses that mm, are six mm, feet mm, wide mm, and spangly mm. with diamonds. Rod Stewart and the Faces had been dressing like, you know, geezers on the yeah. Fulham Road. Yeah. Suddenly they've got satin pants and yeah. glitter everything. It went across the world and it was all to do with this amorphous kind of, is he a boy, is he a girl? Which went all the way back to the Beatles having long hair. And falsetto voices, yeah. It must have been very exciting, I have to say, if you were a teenager back then. And then to witness Bowie sort of lead all this and then change again and change again. Of course, we should mention the fact that he was an actor as well. I don't know if you regarded any of his acting performances seriously, I, well, did you? Well, I get to tell another wonderful story now, yeah. because... Yeah. Uh, well, remind I, me to tell you my Elvis Presley story before okay. we finish this. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When The Man Who Fell to Earth came out, in, in those I don't, I don't think you can do it now, maybe you can, yeah. but in those days you could go to the cinema in the afternoon and, and just stay all day and all night. You know, mm. the, the film would end mm. and you would just hang out until it started again. Yeah. And I remember the first day it opened in London, me and my other Bowie freak friend called Frank. Yeah. I think we saw the film three times that day, you know, and then went back the following week and did it again and again. Mm -hmm. But I think he was great in that. I wasn't a big fan of the Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence no. or the, the vampire movie. And However, in 1980, the very first time I ever went to America was with Black Sabbath, mm. the Heaven and Hell tour. Mm. And we were staying at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. Spent the whole week there blagging it because I actually thought I'd probably never get to go to America again. <laughs> okay. And one of the things I blagged was tickets to see The Elephant Man mm. off Broadway at the Booth Theatre, yeah. which starred David Bowie. 
And uh, the, my mate who was with me, we were in about row five. Yeah. I remember David Cassidy was sitting in front of us in the <laughs> row in front. And the various kind of, it was because they were press tickets. In those days, the press mattered. They, they no longer matter. But <laughs> in those days. Yeah. And my God, it was an extraordinary performance. I mm. mean, that's when I knew he could act. Mm. The film roles always seemed a bit wooden to me. They seemed a bit, he just seemed like Bowie in yeah. so many of them. Yeah. But on stage, portraying the Elephant Man with no prosthetics or anything, he conveyed the whole hideousness of the Elephant Man so amazingly, just through moulding his body in a certain way. Yeah. And halfway through the show, there's this kind of weird, surreal moment where the inner Elephant Man comes out on stage, so he's not disfigured. And Bowie comes out in his full kind of... Because quite athletic. And yeah. <clears throat> he had a dancer's physique. He did. And yeah. the whole mime thing. So he comes yeah. out completely startling and impressive and mm. charismatic mm -hmm. and does this kind of monologue. And just being, you know, just 20 feet away while he was performing this thing, I suddenly thought, God, this, this is what they mean when they say someone is a true star. Yeah. This guy radiates... Something, Stardom. Yeah, yeah. something that you just—it's undeniable, fantastic, undeniable. It's yeah. Funny that he did the what was he in? He was in Absolute Beginners and Labyrinth in the eighties, yeah, which are sort of laughably eighties now, yeah. And as you say, kind of playing himself, but he was definitely bigger than just a musician. I wonder if perhaps he would have liked to be more of a film star than uh, than a rock star. Well, you know, as well as Black Star, before he died, he wrote his first play, Lazarus, right which was uh, playing on Broadway. He went to the preview and the premiere of that very, mm. very ill mm. in the months leading up to his death. And, of course, they brought the production to London, yeah. you know, in the year after he died. So I think for sure that was something he would have really enjoyed. I remember seeing the Station to Station tour uh, in 76 and they didn't have a support band. Instead... A huge screen came down and they showed Un Chien Andalou yeah. by Louis Bunuel. Mm. There's your support act for David Bowie, <laughs> a film by Salvador Dali and Louis Bunuel. I yeah. mean, with the eyeball cutting scene. Absolutely. Gotta love David for that. And one thing we should mention, also squeezing quickly, is because I think we mentioned it in the build up yeah. about the occult reference you made. Oh, crikey. Yeah. Bowie in his cocaine frenzy in Los Angeles. Yeah. In the mid 70s. Now, Angie Bowie once told me that Los Angeles in the years 73, 74, 75, 76, she said, was the mm. world centre for the occult. There mm. were more lodges and happenings going on there than anywhere else. And she described an extraordinary event where their swimming pool in LA, the bottom of the pool had this monstrous looking black figure. Yeah as if it was painted on the bottom of the swimming pool, but it hadn't been there the day before. <laughs> and it was there for several days and weeks. They had a guy come over to do an exorcism, and the pool was churning. Oh, the full exorcist. And the, the, yeah, and the yeah, house is shaking. Yeah, yeah. And the next day it was gone. But Bloody David hell. was so terrified, he moved out. And yeah. this was when he was keeping samples of his own sperm in the fridge, blood samples. Mind you, who doesn't do that? Exactly. I mean, in the 80s, it would have just been called a health fad. I have a couple of stories to share with you. One is that, I don't know if you know this, but I wrote a book with Glenn Hughes. I did his, <laughs> I did his autobiography a couple of years ago. Now, as we know, he lived with Bowie. Hang, hang on, just to be clear. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you did this biography about eight years ago. Yeah, maybe eight years ago. 
But that's why but it's, let's, it's matured like a fine Stilton. It has. Yes. Right now, look. Uh, the reason Stinks I'm the reason like I'm quoting the reason why I'm quoting this tome is because, of course, Glenith, because you always do <laughs> because I have. It's become the meme that we do in our thing. Look, Glenith lived with Bowie, right? Just before he went off to do, I think either Station to Station or Young yeah. Americans, one of those. Yeah. Um, station to Station. There's a famous story about Bowie traveling across America on his own on a train with no security. I don't really know why, but like Glenn, uh, he was in or close to the grip of complete cocaine psychosis and the stories that they had together are rife you know clutching a kitchen knife in the kitchen because someone's going to come through the door all the stories that we've read about and we've read about all been many there. many times we've you know, all i was doing there. it this morning <laughs> and the other story i really want to tell you which woody woodmansy told me was that bowie suddenly took off to new york to watch elvis presley play in new york and he was a massive elvis fan yeah and the funny it's not a long story the fun, all that happened is that bowie put on his full ziggy stardust regalia entered the theater now, Elvis's fans in the early 70s were old people, old guys in suits. Bowie walks in at the back of the theatre wearing the full gear, and he's late. And his seat is in the front row. So he has to walk all the way down past all these sales reps and fucking accountants and their wives and sit there pretty much with a spotlight on him while the pelvis is on stage. The sweet thing about it is that he was very embarrassed. He didn't swan in and say, everyone look at me. He was completely humiliated because he looked like that. And I just love that story because, it, you know, the guy was a human, right? He was a human, despite appearances to the contrary. I don't think he was a human. I think he might have been an alien. I think he was an alien. What's your favourite Bowie song? Lazarus. Mine is Subterraneans. Hmm? From Low. Oh, the instrumental. That one, yeah. Subterraneans from Low has the famous non-lyrical line. Yeah. I'm going to sing it for you. Here we go. And then I'll do the background. K-line, K-line. Hang on, I'll start again. You do the background. K-line, 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 K-line. Briding the Shelly, Shelly on. Beautiful. All right, we need to wind up because nearly out of time. Um, listen, we, we traditionally order, award these people five stars, do we not? Uh, we do. For various criteria. We do. Now, look, Bowie's legacy, mm. you know, marks out of five. Six. Yeah. You can't really disagree, you know. Okay, uh, his uh, star quality. Six. God. <laughs> his appetite for excess. Huh? Okay, I'm going to say four mm. because... It, he went through know, the Coke thing, didn't he? It, oh. And smack, right? Or was it just Coke? Everybody did. All that stuff, yeah. I mean, the difference is, you know, he had a period of it. He didn't turn it into a lifestyle choice for the rest of his life, unlike, say, Keith Richards or Lemmy yeah. or someone like that. So mm. I'd say while it lasted, I'm going to say four because he stronged it, as we say, in the East End of <laughs> London. He stronged it. <laughs> but um, doing a Russian accent. Now. <laughs> he stronged it. I have Moscow. a theory. I have a theory. Now, he died at 69 awfully. We're all gutted about it still, you know, I, I, a couple of years later. No, it's just awful. He died at the age of 69. My theory is that if you go through an addiction and recovery in your early years, mm. you may well get through it by the age of 25 and whatever, be sober as a judge, but you will lose 10 years at the end of your life. You'll die at 70, not 80, or you'll die at 60, not 70. That's my sobering thought. Yeah, cheers for that, Sean. Yeah, all the best. <laughs> I knew that pork pie addiction wouldn't serve me well. So I guess the next episode is going to be about me. <laughs> anyway, so how do we get from David Bowie to the next dead rock star? Well... It says mm, here, yeah. uh, both had Irish roots through their mothers. Well, no. And as you heard in this podcast, mm. Bowie was an Elvis fan, uh, as was our next dead rock star, who wrote a tribute to Did the Lord. king. Did he really? Bowie uh, also made several iconic yeah. appearances. Are there any other kind of appearances on yeah, Top of the exactly. Pops and iconic? Exactly. Whatever what that means. Haircut several 100 Iconic. <laughs> um, as did our next dead rock star, 
but he also wrote an iconic Top of the Pops theme tune. Good Lord. Bowie might have enjoyed serious moonlight. I love this. Here we go. Our next dead rock star enjoyed <laughs> dancing, dancing in it. Booyah! God damn, if that doesn't give it away, you should be ashamed of There's yourself. There's more. David Bowie and our next dead rock star have strong connections to Hammersmith Apollo. Mm. This written by our producer, of course, who's too young to remember, it's actually called Hammersmith Odeon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in fact, according to rock legend, the recordings of a Bowie audience at Hammersmith Odeon... <laughs> was used on our next Dead Rock Star's iconic live album. (laughs) A claim perhaps bolstered by the fact that both were produced by Tony Visconti. What an icon that man is. And on that note, everyone, this has been a 7 Digital production. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Please share and share the heck out of our podcast. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Hell yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.